you'd prefer an up-close view than the one from behind the knife. When you prefer your conversation be more audible than the bleeding, that's when you know you'd rather be here, entire country. Join Milos Bahavitz, Joe DeBose, and me, Rishi Kundi, as we talk about trauma surgery, life, trauma surgery, powerboats, trauma surgery, cats, and the mandolin. You're listening to Tiger Country. Well, welcome back, everybody, to the latest episode of Tiger Country. Um, today, we're talking about a topic that's very common in trauma and probably just as common in the emergency general surgery world, and that's damage control and uh, a little bit about the open abdomen as well. And we're very fortunate today to be joined by one of the foremost experts in the field, Dr. Martin Zelensky. Hello, sir. Pleasure to have you. Yeah, gentlemen, thanks for having me. Look forward to having a conversation about this. Um, you know, being being the uh, the youngest person uh, on the show, damage control to me was always about trauma and getting sick patients in and out. And it wasn't until I I grew up a little bit and was allowed to take part in some of the bigger surgeries that damage control outside of the trauma setting was uh, something that became part of my practice. So bearing in mind that that might not be something that's commonly known to some of our uh, younger listeners, can you give us a brief overview of um, what exactly damage control in emergency general surgery is and how that process has evolved? Yeah, well, it certainly has evolved uh, from the trauma literature and practice into emergency general surgery over time, but it did originate back in the early 90s with the Penn Group um, basically defining that somebody in severe physiologic derangement, and originally, of course, it was hemorrhage in the traumatic setting, but that uh, evolved into uh, severe sepsis in the EGS setting. And the, the whole point is to get that patient to an ICU or a safe harbor as quickly as possible by doing the li most limited amount of operative interventions required um, in order to have source control of either bleeding or sepsis. A lot of times that will, of course, insinuate that you're uh, packing the liver, taking care of major arterial bleeding, um, or in EGS, it may be diverticulitis and you're scooping out um, the feces and uh, resecting the perforated colon and getting them back to the ICU. It, I think uh, part of the important parts of this is that um, it's a severe physiologic derangement, which is difficult to define, but that's really the indication. And it doesn't really matter the origin or the etiology of the, the uh, shock. So, so Martin, you know, I, I uh, it's interesting. We, you and I and Rishi and some of you, Milos, we're on the tail end of this thing called damage, uh, damage control, all the effects that, that our predecessors in the seventies and eighties saw these patients with massive fluid resuscitations. It really drove all this. We've gotten better. We've gotten smarter about resuscitation. Some of your research has helped us understand that better. So I guess my question for you is um, if you had to, and there's lots of gray area, right? They go into these judgments, then it does take judgment. But in 2023, who, who gets, how do you make that decision? No, boots on the ground. It's enough to say somebody has physiologic derangement, but you ask for certain numbers. What do you see and look at? How do you decide who gets an open abdomen in trauma and, uh, and in non-trauma? 
So I think it's best defined in trauma. And uh, the best indications that I've found, you know, you can, you can point to uh, profound metabolic acidosis, pH less than 7.2, things of that nature. But I think uh, more from a practical standpoint, uh, it's when you have two visceral injuries plus a major vascular injury, that's been um, one of the more traditional approaches. But to your point, it's it's very poorly defined, and I think it has a lot to do with um, user, uh, meaning the surgeon. It, it, it's just a feeling sometimes that you get. The problem, of course, though, it is definitively overused. I think that's gone down in recent time because of the the recognition that we overuse it. But um, I, I've continued to see it overused, in, in even within not my specific practice, I guess, but um, within our, our group. So it's one of those things where there are complications that are associated with it. And so you want to reserve it for only those patients you think will truly benefit. So, I mean, the deadly triad used to be kind of in my mind when I was trained, if they have the deadly triad, the hypothermia, acidosis, and coagulopathy, that was like, okay, this is now we're frame shifting into this damage control. We're going to leave the belly open. But those are in the, of themselves agree. What is coagulopathy? Oftentimes we don't have a measurement that tells us that unless you have a tag. So it's just looking at wounds. How cold is too cold and how acidotic is too acidotic? Do you have any numbers in your head that you use specifically? Or is it just kind of this? That's those are ingredients in the soup that you put in and you know when it tastes like it's time for open abdomen. Yeah, I think it's more of an ingredients, but I think there are some hard ones. Uh, for me, if it's a pH less than 7.1. Uh, that's probably about time you're going to be getting that patient up off to the ICU. And the reason for that is pressors below 7.2 start uh, not working quite as well. And then certainly below 7.1, they're, they're almost ineffective. So you want to get that patient's pH back up as quickly as possible. Hypothermia, obviously, uh, you know, is part of the, the lethal triad, and that leads to more coagulopathy and more acidosis. Therefore, uh, I think, you know, less than 35 to me is a pretty good indication. So there are some harder indications, if you will. Not all the patients that I think benefit from damage control, however, will necessarily meet some of those because it's a constellation of the uh, different factors that, that are really um, put into this type of an approach. So, it, and it's, all, it's not uncommon that in trauma and even in, you know, acute care surgery, uh, emergency general surgery type cases that some bowel has got to get resected, right? Uh, even an EGS, a perforated diverticulus, a strangulated portion of the bowel from an incarcerated hernia. I mean, there's a host of different types of scenarios I could paint. But when you're left in this setting that, you, okay, it's going to be smart to leave the abdomen open, I get the soup tastes right. It tastes like open abdomen day at the table. Um, what do you do with the bowel? Is it, is it always wrong to leave the bowel in discontinuity? Is there downside to that? And how do you make that decision? Uh, so if you're going to, if you've chosen damage control, uh, true damage control, not what I would consider a second look laparotomy, I think those are two distinct clinical scenarios. So damage control, uh, you should not be doing an anastomosis in that initial operation. The whole point of damage control is to get the patient to the ICU quicker so you can resuscitate in a more effective surrounding. If you're spending 20 minutes, 30 minutes doing an anastomosis, that to me indicates that you're not as worried about the physiologic derangement. Now, I, I, to my earlier point, second look laparotomy, that's a different thing. So that's more uh, a planned second look where the patient may be sick, but doesn't necessarily meet damage control, but you wanna see if there's more bowel to resect in cases like mesenteric ischemia, those kinds of cases. That is a distinctly different process. Now you're still gonna use potentially an open abdomen, 
but that doesn't mean that the, the open abdomen is for the same indication. Yeah, great points. I appreciate that. So that gives us some guidelines as to kind of who gets an open abdomen in both trauma and EGS. Um, now my next question for you. So what do I do for the temporary abdominal closure? Historically, right, we've seen, and I have pictures in my little open abdomen talk that's pretty dusty at this point, but uh, there's towel clamps in there. There's this Bogota bag where they cut the IV bag and they sew it in around the fascia. There's a Barker bag, which is kind of a modified thing that uh, a vacuum seal thing that we used to use in Afghanistan and they've used in other places. And then there's it's all these KCI products like Abthera. Which one is is really, in your opinion, should be kind of the go to for that? Well, you got to use what you have around. And, and a lot of those original uh, you know, especially the Bogota bag, it's my understanding those are still used, uh, particularly in poor resource institutions and countries. So you got to use what you have. And if that's uh, something along that lines, then, then use it. And there are a whole host of make up uh, your own type of solution for this. Um, the, the bottom line is, to me, at least a negative pressure uh, system is probably going to be the best. Um, and to that end, you need a wound back um, in my opinion, at least uh, in my practice. And that can be KCI. And there are certainly some advantages behind that product. But you could also make your own. And we, ha we have wound, wound vacs um, that, that we could use for a lot of different things. You do need to make sure you have a barrier between that vac and the bowel, of course. Um, and that can be silastic or some other kind of plastic or ioban wrap towel. There, there's a whole host of options. Some people will put retention sutures. Uh, some people think that that's a bad idea. I do tend to use one or two retention sutures just to make sure that that fascia stays um, approximated uh, to the best of our abilities. Um, you know, and then there's, there's another product, um, you know, that uses Velcro. And I, I'm not the biggest fan of that, especially in bowel perforations, because I've seen that get infected. Talk about a Whitman patch. Well, exactly. Yeah. So Whitman patch, it, it works, I think, but I've seen it get soiled. And, um, you know, whenever you have to sew something back into the fascia because it's soiled, uh, you know, take it out and, and replace it. I, I think that that causes more trauma to the um, fascia. So I don't use that personally. So... Dr. Zelensky, I think in in any area in trauma and acute care surgery, there are those things which are discussed on a daily basis and actually put into practice on a once every three or four month basis. And in my experience, that's DPR. I have seen direct peritoneal resuscitation done maybe a half dozen times uh, in my entire career, including residency. Um, but I find that... <clears throat> it's always talked about at least once every couple of weeks for a patient. Could you walk us through a little bit about what DPR is uh, and what advantages it might offer? So DPR is direct peritoneal resuscitation. It was an idea brought out by uh, Jason Smith in Louisville. I think he was the originator of all that. He's certainly done the most work on it, where you essentially put dialysate infused into um, JP drains and then drained through chest tubes in a temporary abdominal closure situation. The point behind it is to, I think it's a twofold theoretic basis. Um, one is for vasodilatory effects. So if you vasodilate the bowel, um, you're contra uh, acting on the vasoconstricting effects of the pressors that these patients are almost universally on. So the thought there is you would, uh, by improving the blood flow, you're going to decrease the permeability of the intestinal layer, therefore have 
fewer translocations of bacteria, hopefully less sepsis, back, um, infections of other sorts, um, that kind of a thing. Um, it also helps with some of the toxins, I, I, I guess. Um, you know, I, I don't know some of the, you know, the basic science data is, is a little unclear, but um, those are two of the, the reasons that people think it's used. Now, get to your original point of, do you use it all that often? Well, I mean, I think, I think the Louisville group actually does use it quite often. If you look at their randomized control trial from a few years ago, and they've done it in both trauma and EGS, I mean, they have a few hundred patients, I think like 150 to 200 patients in those studies. So they're, they're using it. Um, does every patient benefit? I, I think that's less clear, um, but it's certainly to something to keep in your arm armamentarium uh, to be able to pull out when you need it. So the, the use of dialysate has always made sense to me because I think about it almost certainly incorrectly uh, as just really aggressive PD to get the, the toxins out. But most of the work has been done using dialysate and specifically glucose-containing solutions. Um, I, I hear tell that some people are using hypertonic saline uh, for DPR. Do you know anything about that? And do you have an opinion about it? I actually haven't read that. Uh, it, it makes some sense. Um, you know, we're using hypertonic saline for, for brain injury, and it's the same kind of effect, right? We want to decrease the swelling to increase the cranial blood flow. Maybe that's something similar for we're increasing the blood flow to the intestines by doing uh, um, hypertonic saline, perhaps. Um, I don't know. I, I don't have any experience with that. Well, I certainly don't either. Um, what I do have experience with is going the damage control route and the the overall sentiment when a patient has an open abdomen and you deliver them in the unit is that some clock is now ticking, particularly if they're in discontinuity. So how do you manage these patients? They've got not just with the open abdomen, but after the first damage control procedure, they're in discontinuity, they're being actively resuscitated. What does active resuscitation mean for you in the unit after the initial operation? Active resuscitation to me means uh, actively correcting coagulopathy, hypothermia, and acidosis. Um, obviously the three drivers of the lethal triad of death. So um, warming the patient, having the room warm, warmed fluids, uh, bear hugger, et cetera. Um, frequent electrolyte checks um, and, and correcting those, perhaps initiating dialysis, uh, that may be necessary, of course. Um, and then uh, coagulopathy, you're following your tags, replacing, hopefully you've already been giving one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one if they're hemorrhaging. Um, but of course, uh, uh, following the, the best coagulopathy labs that we have or you have available and correcting with plasma platelets um, as needed. And then ensuring, of course, uh, um, cardiac output and, and uh, oxygen delivery with your hemoglobin is um, idealized too. So looking at SCVO2 as an endpoint to me, always has made sense. It doesn't bear out quite as well in the literature, but that makes sense. And it's a number you can go after to, to be able to at least um, get a good idea of where that patient is as far as the endpoint of resuscitation. So when you, when you do arrive in the unit, do you have a time window in mind that will guide how aggressive you're going to be at rewarming the patient, at correcting your electrolytes? Like, do you, do you aim to go back to the OR within 36 hours and that is what's going to guide, you know, your decision to actively rewarm them or not? Uh, so I would actively rewarm no matter when you're planning on taking the patient back, um, especially in the setting of hemorrhage, because that's going to uh, allow your, your coagulation factors to, to work um, in the most ideal situation. 
Um, to me, you want to correct and get get a patient normalized within six hours. Okay. Um, six hours to me just makes sense. That's what surviving sepsis uh, literature is based on. Um, I don't know that there's any literature about about this out out there in, in damage control necessarily. Um, the other point I would I would bring up though is you shouldn't wait for the op or excuse me wait for the ICU. This should be the minute that you have contact with that patient in the ER or wherever you're you're, you're um, initially consulted. You need to actively start resuscitation at that moment. Um, it's it's not a wait for the ICU. It's not a wait for the OR. The anesthesiologists, you know, they need to be doing. Uh, exactly the same thing you'd be doing in the ICU to the best of their abilities, knowing that, of course, they're under general, patients under general anesthesia. As far as returning the operating room, I think the answer is the sooner the better. Um, certainly within 48 hours would be a goal. Um, one of the, uh, th there's not a lot of good timing studies. One of the more um, outlandish titles I remember uh, was 100% uh, primary fascial closure uh, in patients that went back to the operating room within 48 hours. I think that's a good goal. Um, the sooner the better though. So if you can bring a patient back within six, 12 hours, because uh, they're, they're actively rewarmed and, and meeting criteria. Otherwise, I think that that's a viable thing to do. You may have uh, not needed a damage control operation in that situation, however. Um, so it's hard to know for sure. Um, so yeah, the sooner the better, and you don't have to wait for 48 hours, but certainly by 48 hours, I think you need to be back in the operating room. Now, the other question then is, what if by six hours, patient's not reversed? What if they're still actively requiring resuscitation and things are getting worse? You also have to consider going back to the operating room. So you still may have coagulopathy and bleeding going on that you need you might not have controlled well enough in the first, in the first operation. And if that's the case, the mortality of those folks is over 50%. Yeah, I, it's, especially when you're, you know, on the beginning part of your attending hood, trying to make that decision between what's coagulopathic bleeding and what's, uh, I think I forgot to ligate something is, is always very challenging. Um, hands down for me, one of the most frustrating things is when I take over one of these damage control operations and I'm tasked with closing the abdomen and um, Dr. DeBose and myself are, are here in Texas. So some of these folks are Texas-sized and trying to bring the two edges of fascia together can be um, extremely challenging. Um, I've, I've, I've looked into, I've read a little bit about the potential use of mesh, uh, both in trauma and emergency general surgery. Do you see a role in using prophylactic mesh to close some of these patients? Can you shed a little bit of light about how you would go about closing one of these difficult open abdomens for us? Yeah, so this uh, it still is, remains challenging, but let me tell you, Dr. DeBose and I lived through the over-resuscitation periods when we were residents uh, and Boy, it was really tough. So you could turn a, a non-Texas sized patient into the Michelin man really quickly because you're giving liter after liter after liter after liter of uh, crystalloid, which we've now subsequently learned is, is not a good approach and you wanna do hemor hemorrhagic uh, resuscitation. So it's gotten better, but you will still of course have the patients where the fascia is not gonna come together. So again, Make sure that the, always the first best option is primary fascial closure with sutures. Um, 
the next best option is is to use a I, I think you have to you have to get the abdomen closed somehow or else your risk of intercutaneous fistula will will dramatically increase and so whatever you need to do in my opinion is probably worthwhile i would strongly hesitate to use a synthetic mesh in this kind of situation but i think a biologic if uh, it has to be done is probably your next best approach um, you could also consider using micro mesh um, particularly in instances of of ongoing severe infection. Uh, perhaps the patient already has an intercutaneous fistula, those sorts of things, you know, if there's still stool in the wound, your, your biologic mesh is gonna probably melt away or get infected in there. Well, not necrotic, because it's not alive, but I think you get the point. It's gonna melt away. Um, so sometimes uh, Vicro mesh, we know it'll go away, but hopefully you can get some granulation tissue and then a skin graft on within a few weeks um, in that type of situation, be able to um, hopefully present uh, uh, intercutaneous fistula. Do you have a preference on, you know, my partners and I do slightly different things. I'm a big fan of a running bi-directional suture. Some of them insist on doing interrupted sutures for three hours to close the abdomen. I'm not aware of data suggesting one is superior than the other. I just know what my preference is. Yeah, so in elective laparotomies, there is data, and there's very good data showing that you should use four to one small bites, half centimeter in between. Now, that data doesn't exist, or at least those studies didn't include emergency general surgery in trauma patients and damage control situations. So um, I think you can probably do what you think is best for the patient and what you're most comfortable with. Um, I tend to believe, I, I don't see a huge difference between those studies and the patients that we're taking care of. So I tend to use uh, a running uh, four to one, small small bites, um, and I won't use proline. I'll use PDS uh, because proline is permanent, and we don't. You know, the whole point here is to try to avoid permanent things. In, in my opinion, and, and as an itis for infection, the expert has spoken. I will pass on the message. <laughs> so, when you see these patients in clinic long term. Uh, do you see a difference in outcomes between the damage control group and just conventional primary closure, non-damage control patients? Aside from the fact that there's clearly a selection bias because the ones who you're doing damage control probably are not starting out in the best of positions. Yeah, that's definitely true. If you can get their fascia closed at the end of the um, operative interventions, I don't know. I, I've never personally, don't, anecdotally, have not seen a difference. Uh, obviously, there's a huge difference though, if you're doing mesh um, or or micro mesh and, and um, uh, skin grafts. So, I mean, those patients, by and large, will need to be reconstructed at some point in the next year or so. So, yeah, there's a difference there. But as long as you can get the fascia closed, I think they're probably going to turn out relatively similar. <clears throat> Sorry, I was muted. We'll edit out the pause later. Uh, the uh, thanks, Martin, for for joining us. We really, it's really such a pleasure to pick your brain. You're such a smart guy on this topic, and one of the nicer human beings in the trauma community. And okay. We like to close our podcast with some random questions, so everybody else in the who's listening gets to know a little bit about you and how great you are, just as the three of us do. One of the an interesting bit of uh, you know your life change recently is you uh, you made a big prof professional transition after 18 years at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. You moved to Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, 
and are now their chief of the Division of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. So I imagine probably the uh, trapper hat and heavy sweaters either got thrown out or put way up in the attic. But aside from the new job, which is always an adjustment, new facility, what do you, what's the change of environment been like for you? What do you miss about Minnesota already? And what's your favorite thing thus far, at least about Texas? So Texas, the weather, of course, uh, Minnesota, Minnesota winters, man, they're, they're a treat to live through, man. They're, they are there. It's not necessarily the intensity of the cold. It's the duration. And it's, <laughs> I, I, I swear I was getting, um, um, seasonal affective disorder there at the end within the last few years the sun's not if the sun's out it's too cold to go out um you know so that was a nice change uh to Texas now it's almost June it's going to be blazing hot here in 90s every day at day and night actually and Houston um, humidity you're going to get too you haven't experienced that yet that's a special oh, Texas love already it's pretty crazy so I would say the weather's probably the best thing, but um, you know, it was it was a big deal to move. Uh, my wife was born and raised in Rochester, Minnesota. Her parents still live there. My kids were born and raised in Rochester, Minnesota. Lived there for 18 years since uh, internship. Uh, we had really deep roots, um, but you know, a combination of frustrations there plus this uh, really awesome opportunity here, um, it was something I just couldn't pass up. Yeah. Any favorite foods? Have you been dining heavily on the Tex-Mex yet? Uh, the tacos, right. uh, a great burrito, yeah, but the Tex-Mex and the tacos, yeah, I mean, we went to a uh, uh, Shabu Shabu place uh, for my birthday, which was really cool. Uh, that doesn't exist in Minnesota, I'll tell you that. Uh, <laughs> there, there's been some fun things, you know, going down to Galveston uh, has been great. Uh, we're actually headed down to Port Aransas, which is uh, just off the, uh, you know, on the coast uh, near Corpus Christi uh, this weekend. Uh, so I haven't been down there yet, but looking forward to that a lot too. Stock show and rodeo next year. Take the kids. They'll enjoy that too. Mile from NRG. So yeah, we went there. That was a lot of fun. And we saw Zach. Oh, okay, good. You saw that. So you're also as a byproduct of, you know, all those years in Minnesota, sadly, you are a well-publicized Minnesota Vikings fan. Um, any chance you're going to change your allegiances, at least partially to the Texas of the Cowboys now that you're a Texas citizen? Uh, definitely not the Cowboys. I could not never do that. Uh, I could I could handle the Texans. It's just that they stink so badly. I don't I don't know that you know they were what second worst in the league last year. I just couldn't. It's maybe, called maybe. rebuilding. It's called rebuilding. They've been rebuilding for a few years, so they they, they they're slowing down. Uh, so yeah, I was a um, a season ticket holder for the Vikings. So that was a sad day when I had to give those up. Um, I still went back for two games last year, so that was a lot of fun. Still have family. Back there so I'll stay with my parents uh, but it's been a bit of transition I, I wouldn't mind being a Texans fan but they've got to get a little bit better before I can get on that bandwagon well the thing about Minnesota the games are such an event at Minnesota with the the horn and all that good stuff but is it really being a Minnesota fan or hating the Green Bay Packers that's more palatable and more cherishable yes <laughs> yes <okay. laughs> yes to both uh, the two go hand in hand they have to right yeah. So it's, it's actually kind of funny. So Wisconsin, obviously, is, is, we're next door neighbors up in Minnesota. Um, there are a lot more Wisconsin people that migrate to Minnesota than Minnesota people that migrate to Wisconsin. Um, so you get a ton of Packers fans in, in Minneapolis um, and Rochester and, and the whole area. It's, it's kind of strange because the minute that you go to Wisconsin, there's hardly anybody's from Minnesota. It's, I don't know why that is. I, so I always convince people that are living in Minnesota that are from Wisconsin are Packers fans. You know, they actually... What are you doing in our state, man? 
go home. Yeah. Um, and then on a little more serious note, kind of our final question here, I, I, I find that, um, you know, we all struggle a little bit being a surgeon scientist like yourself. You put out some great research that's changed practice and um, clearly have a passion for that and interest and a gift for that. But it get you know, it get, it, I find it gets harder in the modern era than it used to when I was a younger attending or fellow. Um, it requires some dedication. It requires some things you can't control, like a willing organization to support some of these things. You don't have, you have lack of protected time. You have this huge emphasis on RVU production over research, even in the academic uh, arena in many places. Uh, you also have increasing family obligations, right? So how do you preserve a place in your life for surgical research and investigation on a kind of a day-to-day -day basis? And how do you plan on maintaining that going forward? Well, I'll give you two answers. One is my own answer for my own situation. And then second will be for, you know, somebody else out there that's starting out. So it's been really hard here um, to start, uh, not start, but to blossom and flourish with a, a research program for the division. And it's, uh, it's a lot of factors, but for me personally, it's because of the administrative work is, is uh, so substantial that, you know, you only have time in the day for so much work to be able to get done. And I just don't have the time to be able to uh, spend as much uh, on doing the research that I used to love to do. Um, you know, and I had developed a pretty good lab uh, back at Mayo um, where it was highly functional. I mean, they were just turning out papers. So it didn't require much, as much input. And I started that when I was a junior attending um, and it just built it, uh, built it on its own um, through that process. So it was something that was just kind of highly functioning and just worked. Um, here, I have to do the administrative things um, for the hospital and for the division first, uh, which of course includes research, but I need to be able to do some of these other things and just kind of get things in line before the research is gonna be as productive. If you're just starting out, that what I would suggest doing, I hate to say it because it's it's not what anybody wants to hear, but it's nights and weekends when you're when you're when you're starting out. Nobody's going to give you time to do these kinds of things. If you have the passion, and I hope a lot of you do, you have to you have to have the passion. Um, but you you have to carve it out, and sometimes that's sacrificing certain things. And you know you're you're the only person that can say what's worth it. Um, and to me, it was, it was definitely worth it. Um, I get to know Dr. DeBose over the last decade or so, and, um, you know, get to know a lot of, uh, great colleagues and friends and, you know, the other thing that really drove me, I had a great discussion with one of my, my most productive, uh, um, resident researchers and he and I were having a debate on what, what kind of research is the best kind of research to do. And I argued that, you know, he was, he actually ended up going into surgical oncology, much to my chagrin, but he did. And he said, you know, I'm going to start looking at uh, weird cancers and doing research on weird cancers and, and, you know, mesothelioma, the abdomen uh, was one of them, those kinds of things. And I argued back, well, I would much rather do it on bowel obstruction, appendicitis, cholecystitis, because that's what affects the overwhelming vast majority of population, you're gonna affect so many more patients doing that. So that was really what started driving me. It wasn't these weird omas that that people really get into it was knowing that you're going to help as many people as you can doing the things that you're doing yeah yeah well thanks again martin so much for your time we really appreciate it i'm going to let our uh our fearless leader here for this podcast uh milos take us out and uh um, conclude this episode thanks for having
Thank you very much, Dr. Zelensky, for, for joining us and passing on some good wisdom on how to do damage control and emergency general surgery and trauma as well. I think it's 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 probably the best skill to develop early on to know what the soup is supposed to take taste like. I'm definitely going to steal that one um, and use it to teach the residents. Um, so to to all our listeners, um, uh, we hope you enjoyed the episode. Thank you again to Dr. DeBose and Dr. Kundi for uh, joining us every week. And we look forward to uh, seeing everybody next time on Tiger Country. Thank you very much. Goodbye. You've been listening to Tiger Country. On behalf of Milos Bahavitz, Joe DeBose, and myself, thanks for joining us. And just in case, this doesn't count toward your CMEs, and please don't use this to study for your in-service. We'll be back soon.